While we were marching through Georgia, everybody swing your honey, swing your high and low. The Alaman left for the old left hand, around the ring you go. A grand old right to left walk on your heel and toe. Promenade that pretty gal to Georgia. In 1951, Oliver Brown tried to enroll his daughter Linda in the Topeka, Kansas public school system. Linda was black, and her father felt that the segregated school his daughter was meant to attend was not equal to the all-white school system, despite an 1896 Supreme Court ruling requiring schools to be separate but equal. The district court agreed that the schools were not equal and that poor school facilities had a detrimental effect on children, but they upheld the idea of segregation. In 1954, the Supreme Court ruled that segregation was in violation of the 14th Amendment, which guarantees equal protection to all citizens under the law. A year later, the issue of school integration would intersect with college athletics. This is Moving Through Georgia, Episode 12, The Sugar Bowl. In 1955, the Georgia Tech Yellow Jackets beat the University of Georgia and won an invitation to play in the Sugar Bowl. They had recently won the Orange Bowl in 1948, the Sugar Bowl in 53 and 54, and the Cotton Bowl in 1955, and they planned to win their 1956 bowl appearance. They would play the University of Pittsburgh. Pitt was founded in 1787 and enrolled their first black student in 1829. When the Sugar Bowl teams were announced, Pitt had already had a decade of black football players. This year, this included reserve fullback Robert Greer. Hugh Grant of Augusta, a fervent supporter of segregation, began the protest with a telegram to Tech's head coach. He was publicly supported by Roy Harris, a regent in the state university system and other segregation proponents throughout Georgia. At first, these demands that the game not be played weren't taken seriously, but they would start to grow as the game grew near. Governor Marvin Griffin held a press conference and announced that he would ask the Board of Regents not to allow any Georgia team to play any games with integrated teams or even allow them to play with non-segregated spectators. He likened the struggle against integration to the Battle of Armageddon, adding, There is no difference in compromising integrity of race on the playing field than doing so in the classrooms. At that point, schools and military bases across the state were addressing the idea of integration. Griffin threatened to even use the state militia, if necessary, to take whatever steps were necessary to preserve segregation. Griffin was trying hard to draw a line against the change happening around him. The history of racial segregation in Southern sports goes back to the beginning of the century. Sometimes a game would be allowed if the black players were removed from the roster. There are some scattered but rare instances of a Southern team playing a Northern team and refusing to play if the black players were not removed. But more often than not, this was dealt with well before the actual game day. In 1929, the University of Georgia cut the ribbon on Sanford Stadium with a seating capacity of 30,000, and they were now in the big-time football business. 
By November, they were 3-3 and ready to make their longest road trip yet to the Bronx and a game against New York University played at Yankee Stadium. NYU had two black players and their coach agreed early on not to put them into the game, but this led to widespread protests through the North and sports writers, activists, and fans demanded that a talented black athlete named David Myers be allowed to play. The other black athlete rarely played and just wasn't as a pivotal a member of the team as Myers was. A few days before the game, the president of NYU announced that Myers had suffered a shoulder injury and would not be able to play the Bulldogs. Everyone figured NYU would back down, and this was widely considered a win for the Southern segregationist cause, and it allowed this sort of agreement to continue into the future. By the way, the Dogs lost that game 27-19. In 1934, the Georgia Tech team faced a University of Michigan team, which also had a black player. It was quietly agreed upon that Michigan would bench their black player, but a backlash of protest reopened the issue as the game approached. Newspapers criticized coaches that celebrated their team's successes and took credit for those successes, but wouldn't stand up for the rights of their players. Tech held firm. They simply would not play if Michigan kept their black teammate. The tech coach even expressed some concern for his own safety if he were to allow the game to proceed. In the end, a compromise of sorts was reached and the black player was benched alongside one of Tech's star players. Michigan won that game 9-2. Then came World War II and its profound effect on segregation. By 1955, when Tech was slated to play Pitt in the Sugar Bowl, Jackie Robinson had already joined the Dodgers, NFL teams had black players, and three black players were in the NBA. Both UGA and Tech had more or less accepted playing against teams with one or two black players, but of course only away games. This game was different. It had come at a time when school integration loomed on Georgia's horizon and was going to be played in the South, in New Orleans. Core principles were at stake. With the governor's announcement that he would ask for the game to be canceled if Pitt insisted on fielding a black player, reporters headed over to the campus to gauge the students' reaction to the proclamation. Some students later said that when they didn't find angry students, they started goading them to get angry. Either way, a public demonstration became a protest complete with burning effigies of the governor. Just after midnight, the crowd reached the Capitol and, finding they couldn't get in, began to move towards the governor's mansion. After a brief standoff with police, a few students tried for the fence and were arrested. It seemed that riot and violence were inevitable when Milton Smith arrived. He was a state legislature who had been nearby preparing for bed when the crowd started to grow. He began addressing the crowd and tried to explain that a riot would hurt the college and do nothing to advance them to the Sugar Bowl. He talked to the police officers and enabled the release of most of the arrested parties and by about 3.30 the streets were quiet again. The next day, everyone had an opinion about the game and the ensuing demonstration. Surprisingly, the students received an outpouring of support. UGA students marched in Athens in support of Tech playing in the Sugar Bowl, and schools like Mercer and Emory held rallies demonstrating against the governor's decision. 
Newspapers in the North and in the South reminded readers that Southern teams had played integrated teams before without any major repercussions. The 15-member Board of Regents met on December 5th for three hours. The story is that the members argued back and forth, only deciding to settle down and come to a decision when Blake Van Leer, president of Georgia Tech, threatened to resign if the game were canceled. By now, the ramifications of this meeting went far beyond the 1956 Sugar Bowl. The regions were meeting to decide the state's policy for Georgia teams playing integrated teams. It was decided that Tech would play in the Sugar Bowl, that in the future out-of-state games would be played according to the rules of the host site, and that no mixed teams or audiences would be permitted at Georgia home athletic events. The regions commended Governor Griffin for his courageous stand in protecting the inviolate and sacred institutions of our people, then demanded that Van Leer find and punish those involved in the demonstration. A step had been made toward integration, but everyone would save face. The game was played in New Orleans and Tech won 7-0. Thirteen black students were admitted to Georgia Tech in 1961 and the students attended classes without incident. Georgia Tech had become an integrated school with neither the police nor the courts involved. Not so much at UGA, who also admitted African-American students the same year, but under court order and with public protests and an accompanying riot. In 2001, a building known as the Ivy Building was renamed the Hunter Holmes Building after the first two black students who saw the end of segregation at the school. One last point, but first, I just want to remind you that Moving Through Georgia is a history podcast focusing on Northeast Georgia. If you have any questions, comments, or complaints, I'd love to hear from you at movingthroughgeorgia at gmail.com. It's all one word. Going back to that demonstration outside the governor's mansion, yeah, there were a few arrests. One sports writer angered the governor by implying that if they looked closely at those protesting the governor's decision, they would find the governor's own son in the crowd. But this turned out to not be correct. The most arrests in any protest around this incident took place in Athens when a gathering of UGA students demonstrating in favor of tech moved through downtown. Some 250 students then ran for Myers Hall and began demanding that the female students toss out their underwear. Yes, this turned from a stand on racially integrated sports into a genuine 1950s panty raid. The Atlanta Constitution does state that many items were in fact tossed from the windows. Fifteen students were arrested in the ensuing chaos. That's all.